You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As the nation prepares for final vaccine approval, retired Lieutenant General Paul Ostrowski joins the Post to discuss Operation Warp Speed's efforts to deliver the vaccine safely, securely, and as soon as possible to the American people. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. And today our guest is retired Lieutenant General Paul Ostrowski, who is the director for supply and distribution of Operation Warp Speed, which is the Trump administration's effort to speed the production and delivery of COVID-19 vaccines to the country. Uh, General Ostrowski, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Uh, let me. David, it's a great uh, start- pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, it's it's our it's our pleasure. Let me start with the basics. This is a big week. The FDA is scheduled this week to uh, meet and discuss uh, approving emergency use authorization uh, for the vaccines that have been developed by Pfizer and Moderna. And, and assuming that that approval process uh, goes well and and the approval is given, tell us what happens next. Uh, Secretary Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, said that within a, within a matter of days after that approval is given, the process of distribution will start. Just describe for us what that will mean. Well, as you know, the advisory committee meets on the 10th. And so we anticipate that we have to be ready any minute after they're done making their deliberations uh, and give their recommendations to the FDA as to whether or not to release the vaccine based on being effective and being safe. And so we anticipate that we have to be ready for that particular word. And once the FDA gives that signature to us, whether it be over the weekend or early next week, we don't really know. And uh, we are not in the process of forcing the FDA to, to rush. We need them to do their role and their responsibilities here with that oversight, that gold standard that they have with respect to that. But as soon as it happens, as soon as the EUA is issued, what we have is Pfizer, who is already in the process of having vaccines being produced, they'll go ahead and move forward with the packaging. And then within 24 hours, the packages begin to roll out of Kalamazoo uh, onto trucks and then onto airplanes uh, directly to the administration sites that the jurisdictions, the 64 jurisdictions, which include the states, have already determined uh, where the vaccines would go. And so it's a really quick process, simply putting together the packages on dry ice and shipping them out. Simultaneously, and even beforehand, what we're doing at our particular supplier, McKesson, is we're moving all of the needles, the syringes, the other parts and pieces to include the alcohol wipes and the deluent necessary in order to administer these vaccines. We'll most likely pre-position those at the sites that the states, the jurisdictions have chosen, and they'll all marry up ready for the inoculations to begin once the vaccine is, is deemed, again, safe and effective by the FDA. So, General, just to, to make clear, because everybody is so focused, obviously, on the timetable, if I understand you, assuming that approval is given by the FDA this week, the vaccines will start moving by by next week. And if I understand you, it's possible that people could be begin to be vaccinated by, by the end of next week. Am I, am I getting that right? That is correct. And even sooner, depending on the actual date that the emergency use authorization is provided by the FDA. And then again, within 24 hours, the shipments begin and FedEx and UPS are the two vendors that Pfizer has worked with in order to get those vaccines out to the four corners of the country. 
and they'll be in, begin pushing those out and within a, a overnight venue. So basically within 24 hours, uh, they could be at vaccine, vaccination sites, administration sites, we call them, and certainly not longer than 36 hours. By 10 a.m., basically the next day is our plan. So, so that's striking. And, and I should ask you about the other uh, vaccine that's scheduled for discussion this week, the vaccine produced by Moderna. What's the, the timeline for that? Well, again, the advisory committee that the FDA has is going to meet with respect to Moderna on the 17th of this month. This is what has been announced so far. And so, again, just like the Pfizer vaccine, we have to be ready the next day or several days after, depending on how long it takes the FDA to make its final decision on safety and efficacy. And then the same process will begin with one caveat. Moderna will move its product directly to McKesson, where the product will be married up with the kits, again, the needles, syringes, the alcohol wipes, all the things necessary to do the inoculations, and they will travel together to the administration sites. Again, McKesson is also using FedEx and UPS as their primary carriers, so it will go out just as the same way as Pfizer, except they'll be married up there at McKesson and move out accordingly. So, General, you've obviously been thinking very, very carefully about the logistics of this, and, and I want to ask you how, how fast this process um, can happen. Under the CDC guidelines, the initial uh, the primary recipients will be, will be healthcare workers uh, and patients in long-term care facilities. That's, that's their advice. Uh, the head of Operation Warp, Warp Speed, Dr. Slawi, uh, said over the weekend that he thought that that by late January uh, it, it should be possible to to vaccinate people and if I understood him most people in those prime categories and that we could even see uh, the beginning of a reduction of deaths among long-term uh, care facility patients by late January run us through that that timetable and just help us to to, to see how that's how that's going to go well, sure. The same information from each one of the two companies, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna, has also been given to the CDC in terms of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. That's the Advisory Committee to the CDC uh, leadership. And what the Advisory Committee doing is they're, they're looking through that same amount of information, just as well as the FDA is, in order to make their final determinations as to how they want to move forward with respect to those prioritization groups, whether it be healthcare workers or is the vaccine more efficacious towards our elderly or those with pre-existing health conditions, for instance. So they'll make those determinations, those recommendations to the CDC leadership, and then we'll go from there in terms of a final decision. But we expect to get that right after any emergency use authorization is, is authorized. So basically they'll come almost simultaneously. And so therefore the vaccines will move out to those particular populations immediately. And again, we anticipate with respect to the healthcare workers, there's about 25 million of those if you add in the first responders. So those obviously a prioritization group, those frontline healthcare providers. And then we've got another 7 million uh, with respect to our elderly that are living in nursing homes and long-term healthcare facilities that the ACIP, the advisory committee, may recommend get the vaccines first as well. So we wanna make sure that we have product moving to those particular locations as fast as we possibly can to get ahead of this thing. And Dr. Slaw is right, of course. Uh, we have a, we'll have about, and again, you know, there's about between the two groups of populations, 25 million with the frontline healthcare providers and first responders, and another 7 million of those living in long-term healthcare facilities and arrest, as well as the staffs. Uh, we should be able to put all that out there, certainly by the month of January, very easily. And then we have to start getting after the other parts of the population. There's another 42 million elderly, over 65, that we have to get after. 
And there's also those essential workers that we have to get after. And so our intent is to be able to walk through all of those groups and by the end of March have completed all of them and beyond to the rest of the American people. So that's really crucial information for everybody uh, watching. By the end of March, you will have moved into, and if, if I understand you, we hope to have completed, in addition to, to healthcare workers and the uh, long-term care patients, other elderly uh, and other essential workers, and then uh, after the end of March, move, move to the population as a whole. Have I got that right? Yes, sir, you've got that correct. And again, that also, we have to make sure that we bring on, again, we've got two other vaccines that we haven't talked about yet, both AstraZeneca and the Janssen vaccine, which is a product of Johnson & Johnson. Those right now are working their way through the latter stages of phase three clinical trials, huge trials, 30,000 people to 40,000 people each. So they're working their way through those, and we should get indicators based on their efficacy within the month of January so that they would be able to be in the same process that Moderna and Pfizer are going through now in terms of getting an EUA, hopefully as early as February. If so, that would put more vaccines on the street and available for the American people. And again, it just depends on how efficacious they are and how safe they are. So we look, we look very forward to those two vaccines coming on board as well. Help us, General, in understanding the process of uh, liaison and the discussion you've been having with the states. Uh, the, the states obviously have been crucial in, in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic from the beginning. What kind of uh, conversations have you had and what are you hearing back from the states about concerns they have, about any uh, flexibility they might want in terms of who they deliver the vaccine to first and how they do it? Yeah, so we're in contact with the states every day between ourselves here at Operation Warp Speed and our colleagues at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Each and every day, numerous meetings going through their plans, working with them to ensure they have all the parts and pieces in place in order to execute, and then doing rehearsals, quite frankly. All of the jurisdictions, minus just a couple, have had the opportunity to lay out their plan in front of uh, General Perna and Dr. Slowey, and as well as the other partners within the CDC headquarters in order to ensure that we understand where their readiness is and we understand where their weaknesses are, where their strengths are, so we can help them, whether it be financially, whether it be with people, whether it be lining them up with, uh, you know, again, our partners within industry in terms of CVS and Walgreens and the other chain pharmacies that are out there to help them execute their plans. But their plans really belong to them. And so what we're trying to do is enable their plans to work for them because they know their states best. They know where to, how to reach their populations. They understand where the underprivileged are and the underserved are. They understand where the minorities live. They understand where their nursing facilities are, their long-term healthcare facilities, their hospitals, their long-term uh, storage for the Pfizer product. So what they've talked about so far is, again, the Pfizer product is a challenging one to an extent, logistically, but it is a highly efficacious vaccine, 95% effic efficacy. That is huge with respect to where we're trying to go. So now it becomes just an issue about how do you distribute it? Well, that's our problem here at Warp Speed. That's our problem to solve along with the states. And so we've been working with them very closely. We've under identified where their long-term, uh, the ability to store that long-term, the freezers that, are, that allow us to have the opportunity to do that. We understand where those are. We understand the capacity of those freezers. And we also understand the limitations and the capabilities of the, of the Pfizer cryobox, the ability to maintain the vaccines in the box under dry ice for periods of time. 
So working through that logistically has been a little bit difficult just because it's not the normal. Normally, it's a minus 20, a, no, a normal freezer temperature that we have to keep these vaccines in, or even refrigerated temperatures at two to five degrees Celsius. So again, a challenge, but a highly efficacious vaccine. We want to get it out there. We need to get out there. So it becomes a logistical issue. Okay, we got that. We're not afraid of the Pfizer vaccine, and we're going to make it happen. So I want to just clarify, are there some states for whatever uh, reasons where the Pfizer vaccine that has to be super cold, where the logistics are unusual, just isn't going to isn't going to be appropriate, where, where those those states are, are, are not going to be in the initial Pfizer distribution? Or are you going to try to cover every state? Yeah, I, of the 64 jurisdictions, there's really only two uh, that don't have one of two, or actually both of the two things. Number one, they don't have a cooler or a freezer capable of maintaining a minus 80. So they don't have that particular capability. They also don't have dry ice, the ability to reproduce the dry ice. So under those particular circumstances, logistically, it would not be prudent for us to send the vaccines there to those two locations. And understandably so, because we don't want to waste vaccine. But of all the 64 jurisdictions, uh, only two are, are logistically unsupportable when it came to that vaccine. And I, I should just ask, ask you to clarify which two jurisdictions those, those are. So those are basically uh, your South Pacific Islands, a couple of the South Pacific Islands. So uh, we, we have uh, watched with uh, really uh, you know, intense interest the speed with which uh, these two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, have been, have been moving toward being able to produce the vaccine. But we also note that there have been what appear to be some uh, manufacturing uh, uh, delays, that the, the number of doses it's been reported that Pfizer can produce is, is less, fairly significantly less initially uh, than, than was expected. Well, the figures I read are 50 million rather than 100 million in this initial period. Uh, explain why that's so and, and whether there are other manufacturing issues either that have arisen or that you think may be possible that you as a chief of logistics here want to think about. Sure. Well, like any new vaccines, there's always going to be the manufacturing scale-up issues. Uh, when you try to go from a 50-liter container, for instance, to a 2,000 liter container. Scalability is huge when it comes to this particular product, these particular products. It's not like, you know, it's, going, it's like going from an easy bake oven to commercial mass production of cookies, uh, quite frankly. So there's a lot of scale up. And so the production processes have to be very, very good at what it is that they're doing. And they also have to be every process, every step of the way, the FDA has to be involved to ensure that it's done correctly. So the combination of just the learning curve of how to scale these vaccines up, things that we didn't see in the smaller batches, the 50 liter batches, we begin to encounter the 2000 liter batch. So we have to go work through those things. We also have to work through to make sure that the FDA is involved in every part of the process to ensure that the vaccines remain safe and effective. So the combination of those two are really the, the, the long poles in a tent. And, and of course, there's gonna be things that happen. We're gonna get, as these, we go through our growing pains of production, we're gonna have a filter that clogs, we're gonna have the power that goes out, we're gonna have, things that all, always happen in production, and you just have to work your way through it. And is that the explanation for the uh, reduction and expected production by, by, by Pfizer, simply the, the difficulty of scaling up um, in the initial process? Yeah, sure, scaling up again. And I also mentioned the fact that as you not only scale up, you go through the processes of these huge uh, vats of, 
of liquid and you run through filtering issues, for instance, you run through consistency issues of product. Uh, there's a thousand different things that could cause you to take a pause, understand what went wrong, go back and fix it. And when you do that, you lose millions of doses at a time potentially. And so that's always part of the scaling up process. That's why it's important for us to get those practices down to a science. And then once we do, we'll be able to have a bet much better cadence and a much better predictability with respect to the, the arrival and uh, the ability to vaccinate the, the American people. I think one thing that people would especially be curious about is, is the role of the military. You're a retired uh, military uh, officer. President Trump has referred at various points to the military playing a key role in this process of distribution. Explain to us just what the military is and isn't going to do uh, in the coming weeks in distribution. Sure. Well, I'll sum it up really in two words, and then I'll, I'll get into the details. But we're enablers and we're bandwidth. See, no entity, no federal entity had the ability to pull all this off. And number one, six vaccines, along with six therapeutics in record time from scratch. And so in order to do that, the contracting, the program management, the logistics associated uh, with the manufacturing process, we didn't have uh, the industrial base here in the United States with extra capacity vaccine production. It simply didn't exist. So we had to build it. And then we had to ensure that it had the manufacturing equipment and the raw materials to execute it. Bringing in the Corps of Engineers to help us with the brick and mortar. Bringing in logistics in terms of being able to capture supply chains, whether it be raw materials or the manufacturing equipment necessary to do all that. This is where the military has a big role in terms of being able to enable uh, our industry partners through, through the capturing of supply chains, enabling the Corps of Engineers to assist in, the, in not only the permitting, but also ensuring that the electrical, the mechanical, and all the parts and pieces in the brick and mortar are ready and, and set to go. And then the other pieces of planners. Uh, the one thing that the military does very well is we do planning. We, we may never execute a plan, but we'll plan 100 different scenarios. And we had to go through all that deliberate planning process in order to ensure that we had a, a very viable plan so that we could work with the states, the jurisdictions, in order to enable them to execute. And so all of those things are things that the military brings to the table, the planning, the contracting, the program management, the logistics, and the Corps of Engineers, amongst other specialties, lawyers, public affairs officers. All of these things, again, HHS just strictly lacked the bandwidth to do it, and understandably so. So will uh, military uh, supply logistics chains actually be involved in this uh, rapid movement next week as you, as you begin to move uh, product out to the, your, your 62 locations? Um, and also, I'm curious whether the Corps of Engineers has been out there building super cold storage facilities uh, in, in recent weeks uh, that we just may not have been aware of. So the military will not be moving the vaccines. It'd be very rare. We're going to allow the, the commercial marketplace, the, the marketplace that does it today with respect to the distribution piece, whether it be UPS, whether it be FedEx, et cetera. Those folks are doing it right now. Our industry partners are well poised to do this. We don't necessarily need to rely on the military. Now, there are situations, David, I will tell you, like in Puerto Rico and in other islands and so forth, where the National Guard may be called up by the jurisdiction to assist in the distribution process. We certainly support that. But on a federal level, there will be no need to call up the National Guard. But the states have the rights to do that. They have the authorities to do that. And they certainly will welcome that particular asset to them, uh, potentially depending on their individual plan. And the second question, so, could you repeat that one more time? 
So, well, I, I just was asking about whether the Corps of Engineers has been out literally building facilities in this run-up period. No, they haven't been building facilities. We've had, really, there's two types of things we've had the Corps of Engineers assist us with. First of all, in order to run these clinical trials, these phase three clinical trials with over 30,000 participants and so forth, a lot of the places that would normally be a site for these trials to occur throughout the United States and across the globe, they didn't want necessarily to have patients or, or participants walking into the actual hospital or the actual clinic. So we put some trailers out there, some double wide trailers that had to be uh, put into, into place in the right way, such as in, in Miami and in Florida and in Louisiana. We needed to make sure that they were hurricane proof. Uh, we had to get the permit in to put them in. We had to have the, all of the OSHA requirements associated with those. We had to have running water, electricity. So the permitting piece of that uh, to ensure those were in place was part of what they did. And then also the inspection and the permitting with respect to the brick and mortar uh, in these companies that had to gear up, whether it be Emergent or whether it be Fuji uh, down at the Texas A&M University. These are huge facilities that had to be built and had to be equipped. And so the Corps of Engineers, uh, understanding the local guidelines, understanding the local codes, understanding the permitting process, understanding electricity, understanding all the parts and pieces with plumbing and so forth, huge assets to these particular corporations building these facilities and equipping them. So, General, we've been talking about the, the uh, supply of vaccines and all, all the ways that you've been working on, on supply. I want to ask now about demand. And I want to begin uh, with something we don't often uh, talk much about, which is the possibility that this will seem so efficacious uh, that people will want it. They don't want it now. Uh, they don't want to wait until it's their turn in the queue. They want it now. Uh, and you can imagine scenarios in which uh, places where the vaccine is being stored might be uh, vulnerable to, to people trying to raid supplies. Uh, that happens all the time uh, in, in our world. We, we see evidence of people trying to hack into uh, various uh, vaccine uh, sites even now. What about that uh, potential uh, risk? Are, are you well prepared to, to ensure the security of the supplies so that if people want to jump the queue or want to grab some vaccine, they can't? Sure. Well, as we talked about up front, the vaccines that we will deliver uh, in the single digit millions of doses uh, within weeks from now, whether it be the Pfizer vaccine or a little bit longer from that than with respect to the Moderna vaccine, uh, we're going to have complete control of these vaccines that will move it through the process, the system directly to hospitals, directly to CVS and Walgreens who have the mobile capacity to move those vaccines to the nursing homes and long-term healthcare facilities, depending on what the advisory committee on immunization practices sets forth as their prioritization groups. And we'll find that out in just a few days and, and so forth. So we're going to be very closely watching those. Those vaccines are monitored the entire time, the process. In other words, they are GPS monitored, uh, obviously monitored for cold chain requirements as well to ensure that they maintain the temperature. We have the right security in place with each of these. We have the right security and have been for quite some time because we knew that there's actors out there that want to do harm to the United States or, or want to potentially try to corrupt what it is that we're trying to accomplish here. And so we have the right I would say parts and pieces in place, working with the three-letter agencies and others to ensure the security, to ensure that we are watching uh, these groups, to ensure that we are keeping an eye on anyone that would want to do us harm. And so we feel very good about where we stand from a physical security perspective, from a cyber security perspective. I think we're in a really good place. Uh, obviously, we don't know what we don't know. There could be something that we have forgotten or some avenue that somebody's chosen. 
But I will tell you that we've gone through the planning process on all of that to ensure that we looked at every single thing that we could think of, uh, not, not only from the good guy side of the perspective, but also from the red team or the bad guy side of it as well. And, and General, the other uh, side of the, of the demand picture is that demand will be less than uh, it would be hoped, that people will uh, mistrust the, the vaccine, they just will have doubts about uh, uh, safety and efficacy. And I want to ask you how you're thinking through that. There have been suggestions that we ought to get some uh, unusual people to attest to this, uh, sports celebrities, ex-presidents, pastors, uh, people who uh, would be trusted figures in, in various communities. Uh, tell us if you've thought through the that process, whether you're thinking about public service uh, advertisements that might encourage people to, to take the vaccine and what your own uh, uh, feeling is about the level of vaccination that's necessary to achieve the, the effects that, that you want in terms of uh, overall health and public health in the United States. Well, first of all, David, again, I, I talked earlier about how I really appreciate the airtime that you're giving me today because part of this is just getting the straight word, the correct word out to American people. You know, we as Americans, it's not in our DNA to live the way we're living right now. It's not what we do. And so when you take into account that aspect, when you take into account the fact that we have the leading scientists in the world, nobody else can even come close. We have the leading pharmaceutical companies in the world. Nobody else can hold a candle to them. And then we have the gold standard with numerous advisory committees, not only with the companies that are developing these vaccines, uh, with respect to that and the clinical trials, but the advisory committees uh, that the FDA has, the advisory committees that the CDC has, we have the gold standard and oversight with respect to everything it is that we're doing. So when you add all that together and you, and you take a look at it holistically, you, and then you take a look at where we're at from an efficacious perspective, you know, the normal influenza vaccine, the normal flu shot that everyone gets, well, not everyone, certainly, but that people take every year, on average, it's about 40% efficacious, 40%. We're at 95 and 94 with these vaccines. That means it's very, very highly likely that it will protect you from getting the disease in terms of a severe case, or even a mild case for that matter. I mean, these are huge amounts in terms of efficacy that we're talking about. So when you take into account the fact that we've got a very efficacious vaccine, we've got a very hot country right now, the, epi, uh, the epidemic rate is huge right now with respect to this. The only way that we're going to get past all this, the only way that we're going to get our lives back, frankly, is to get the vaccine and become uh, what we call herd immunity, over 70% uh, that have been inoculated or have had the disease. And the way we get there, quite frankly, is this. It's, it's also the sports, I would say, personalities and others, but it's really people trust their doctors, they trust their nurses, they trust their healthcare professionals. We have to make sure that we make uh, the case, to make them understand and get them on board. And the fact that we're going to go after healthcare providers that brought these vaccines is going to be extremely important because American people will see that as a sign that they are willing, understanding uh, the nature, understanding the science, understanding the medicine, that these professionals are taking the, the vaccine as well. And that, so the combination of all that, I hope, will lead to a much higher rate than what others have predicted. And we anticipate that it will be higher. So, General, I, sh I should ask you uh, whether you have uh, begun discussions with uh, the team of President-elect uh, Joe Biden, uh, who will, will take office, it's, we expect, on January 20, and that's the time in which the vaccination process will accelerate. 
Are you already in, in conversations with, with his team to, to think about some of the details of that process? And tell us about those conversations. Yeah, David, I, I certainly am involved. We are involved, frankly. And I had a great discussion with the team, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the Biden team on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, so the 25th of November. And a very good discussion. They asked very good questions, very detailed questions. They were very involved. Uh, and I want to understand exactly what we have in place. And then also in just a few days on Friday, uh, we have our round two of those discussions. We've also had those discussions at the Department of Defense with the Department of Defense transition team as well uh, to ensure that everybody on is on board with respect to where it is that we're going. So the conversations are ongoing and they continue to ongo uh, as we go forward here. So I, I should ask you just a final simple question. Um, do you plan to take this virus? Uh, is your, if your grandparents are alive, they're gonna take the virus. Uh, what would you say to, 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 to folks uh, who just aren't sure yet, uh, just as a closing uh, thought from you, about why, why they ought to do this? Well, I go back to what we said a little bit earlier with respect to the fact that, you know, we as Americans is not in our DNA. And I, and I talked about the number one scientists in the world, the number one leading pharmaceutical companies in the world. I talked about the gold standard in terms of the FDA and the rest of it. But here, here's my other point, is that you know, there's a lot of healthy Americans out there that really will, could get this fact, this uh, particular disease, and the side effects would either be very mild or maybe not even known at all. In fact, uh, they don't even know they have it. But the point is, is that all of us, no matter who you are, we mingle with other groups of people. We mingle with elderly. We mingle with all of groups, whether they have comorbidities, in other words, pre-existing health conditions. Many of your friends uh, uh, are either uh, have some kind of uh, heart disease or are obese or have diabetes or are elderly. And so it is really upon all of us to protect them. And the way we protect them is to ensure that we get that vaccine because what we don't want to do is put ourselves in a position where we're super spreaders and not knowing it. And so the best way to do that is to get the vaccine, do the right thing. And I, of course, will get the vaccine. Obviously, as a healthy, uh, younger, I, I, I use that term lightly, adult, I'm certainly not in a prioritized group yet, but my intent is to get that vaccine as, as, as fast as it becomes available to my group, and I'm waiting patiently for that to happen. And General, a final question. I got to ask you, will you stay on with the Biden administration and keep doing this job? Absolutely. I'm going to see this thing all the way through, and that means going into the, as late as June uh, of next year. But whatever it takes, David, to make sure that we get this out there, and we get the American people in a better position than we are today, and we get back our lives that we've lost. So, uh, folks, uh, I want to ask you to all join in thanking General Ostrowski for joining us. Um, General, it's a great conversation. Couldn't be a more timely topic. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow for a conversation with Joe Scarborough, who has a new book about President Truman. Uh, called Saving Freedom. Uh, this time it'll be a chance for me to ask some questions of Joe Scarborough. Uh, it's 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Again, our thanks to today's guest, uh, retired Lieutenant General Paul Ostrowski. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.